It's mid-March in 2020. NCAA basketball conference tournaments are in full swing. The bracket for the big dance is starting to come together. Fans are carefully scouting which team they will pick to win it all. Expecting the unexpected is key. But this March Madness experience would be like no other. Instead of pedestrians piling up on sidewalks outside of a bar to catch the last few minutes of a one-possession game, families across the country crowded around living room TVs blaring the news. Updates about the novel coronavirus poured in 24-7. Officials said to stand six feet apart, wear a mask, avoid gathering in large groups, and shut down the non-essential business. No hugs, handshakes, or high fives. Stakes were suddenly higher than win or go home. It became stay home and save lives. The COVID-19 madness began in March, but it didn't end there. We are in a war against this virus. Surge in cases over the last several weeks. Stay at home order in Los Angeles. Canceled all tournaments for the rest of the season. Pac-12 to postpone the 2020 college football season. These are unprecedented times. Episode 2, March Madness. I'm your host, Jordan Moore. Every year, the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament proves why it has earned the title March Madness. It's a combination of opening day upsets, Cinderella's pulling off the impossible run, half-court buzzer beaters, and fans' brackets busting every hour. The official 2020 March Madness bracket never got published. Conferences didn't crown a champion. The Pac-12 tournament had only made it through the first round when it was brought to a halt on March 12 over concerns about spreading coronavirus. Here's Dr. Seth Gamrat, head of orthopedics for USA Athletics and member of the Pac-12 Medical Advisory Committee. The first big thing to be canceled would be the NC2A basketball tournament. That was the big thing. And with that, everything else in the spring was canceled as well. And so after that, we started talking about the coronavirus uh, pretty regularly, at least twice a week for one hour trying to understand the health and safety measures regarding athletes and the coronavirus moving forward in 2020. But that's when we started meeting in earnest about this is when it was real clear that everything was going to be shut down for a while. We first heard of the outbreak starting in China in January and February. Rumors about the virus spreading to the U.S. were few and far between until it hit Europe in early March. On March 19, 2020, California became the first state to go into lockdown. Like most people, Dr. Gamrat hoped that a month or two lockdown would eradicate the coronavirus. But the Pac-12 Advisory Committee soon realized that wouldn't be the case, and its members sprung into action. Pre-2020 was obviously discussing all issues related to health and athletics and regarding the Pac-12. But we also put on a couple of annual meetings where we all get together and discuss the medical, mental health, and orthopedic issues in Pac-12 athletes. And then we also distribute research dollars to study athlete well-being. That's what we did before coronavirus. And then since March, it's been pretty focused uh, solely on that one issue. I think when a second wave after we finished the initial shutdown, and then cases spiked uh, dramatically, particularly in Los Angeles and Arizona, we realized that it was going to probably affect the way we did things in the fall as well. New York was the early epicenter of the virus in the U.S. 
until California surpassed it in case count at the end of July, after we began slowly reopening businesses. The state then went into another lockdown, and the Pac-12 canceled fall sports. We looked at the, the recent cardiac evidence that Dr. Ackerman's going to talk about. We looked at spread, which was increasing in some of our areas. We looked at government directives, and we just said there's too many questions, too much uncertainty. So we will continue to assess, and hopefully we'll be playing in the spring. It was announced that the USC football season would be postponed through 2020. The California government required regular periodic testing, and the conference didn't have the technology to implement a daily testing protocol. So give us the story of that breaking point when the athletic directors or the university presidents and chancellors came to your committee and said, we need your recommendations or do we need you to just lay out the data for us? And how did that, that sort of play out near the end of the summer? I think it's a, a group decision made by athletic directors and chancellors and university presidents based on advice of a lot of different doctors in the Pac-12. And those doctors included primary care sports medicine physicians, internal medicine physicians, infectious disease doctors, epidemiologists, and then a couple of orthopedic surgeons uh, like myself that, you know, happened to be on the Pac-12 medical board. What changed in late summer is that cases were, number one, spiking dramatically in California and Arizona, particularly uh, in Los Angeles, where we are. The second thing that we were really concerned about is the unknown effect of the virus on athletes' hearts. There were some reports of myocarditis being uh, an issue after someone has contracted the coronavirus and even recovered from it. And then thirdly, there's a little bit of, not a little bit, there was a, there was our initial plan back in March was that we would test weekly for the coronavirus. And based on what other leagues were doing, that looked like it wasn't probably going to be frequent enough to control a potential outbreak. So based on those three things, number one, rising cases, number two, the unknown effect of the coronavirus on the athlete's hearts, and number three, the inability to test daily, like say the NBA is doing down in the bubble in Orlando, that led to a recommendation much similar to what the Big Ten recommended to put uh, all athletics on pause. There were too many unknowns to safely play sports in the fall semester with cases still on the rise and rapid testing not expected until at least November. USC's campus was closed to students and staff without prior approval and all classes were administered online. The lasting effects of COVID-19 are still being researched as doctors aren't sure what the long-term effects of infection look like. But myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, became a concern early on. There was a study in Germany where people with pretty severe cases that were hospitalized ended up with a fair bit of myocarditis. Now, if we were seeing athletes that were having severe cases and going to the hospital with this illness, I think it'd, it'd be very clear that not only would the NC2A be shut down, it, all professional sports would be as well. Because every week we hear about more and more athletes who are testing positive for this, and in general, they recover. 
Uh, the second study with myocarditis was came out of uh, Ohio State. They had done cardiac MRI on these athletes, and it looked like around 19% of a small number of athletes had some changes on cardiac MRI. That was the initial report that scared both the Big Ten and the Pac-12. But since that time, there's been a fair bit of evidence that it's perhaps less common than that. Number one, there have been a lot of students, not necessarily athletes, on many college campuses around the country that have contracted this illness, and it's been apparent that myocarditis hasn't been an issue. We have had more than 200 athletes in the Pac-12 testing positive for coronavirus. Have a full cardiac workup, and none of them have come back with myocarditis. And so even though it's been only six weeks, there's a lot less worry that myocarditis is going to be an issue moving forward with our athletes who end up testing positive for coronavirus. With research easing concerns over myocarditis and coronavirus cases in LA following a downward trend since mid-August, the prospects of joining other conferences in return to sport depended on testing availability. Coming up after the break, Quidel shows up just in time. On September 3rd, the Pac-12 announced a deal with Quidel Corporation, a healthcare manufacturer for daily rapid testing. Here's Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott on the day of the announcement. But I want to focus for a moment on why we chose to partner with Quidel Corporation on an initiative so critical to the health of our student athletes, coaches, and staff. Quidel is the innovation leader in coronavirus diagnostic tests. They were the first to gain FDA approval for the most sensitive SARS molecular tests, commonly known as PCR tests. They were also the first to develop and earn FDA approval for an antigen test that can detect the coronavirus infection from a nasal swab. These tests can be administered and read by a small device called a SOFIA SARS analyzer. This test is highly accurate, can be run in our athletic training rooms, and will produce results in just 15 minutes. We're proud to be working with a California-based leader in this space. It's all US made. This is great that we can work with a company in our footprint that's making such a difference for society in this country, but also around the world. This enables us to know every day before every athletic practice or game that everyone participating tested negative for COVID-19. This access to daily rapid result testing, simply put, is a game changer. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity with Doug to tour not just the plant uh, where these tests are being made, uh, but their research facilities as well in San Diego. Very impressive. I got to see the lines where about 2 million of these antigen tests are produced every week. And I met many terrific people who are bringing these tests to market today. I saw how hard they're working to meet the demand, adding new manufacturing lines so that they can be producing many millions more than they are currently. The Quidel team's speed and deep sense of purpose reminded me of the determination and drive I see every day in our Pac-12 student athletes. And I'm so happy that the work of the Quidel team is going to enable us to pursue this path to return to play for our student athletes that are so eager to get back. In this research partnership, the research aspect of this partnership, I can assure you that the Pac-12 and Quidel share a common purpose, not only to ensure the safety of our student athletes, 
but to use this large population research study to advance our understanding of the COVID-19 virus and help to prevent the spread. I'm sure our athletes will be proud to be a part of this Pac-12 initiative that not only will help keep them safe, but ultimately the results from this testing will help improve public health at large and the well-being for their families and hometowns across the country. Now, what's the difference between an antigen test and a test that you can get locally at Dodger Stadium? I'll let Dr. Gamrad walk us through it. All of these tests test for fragments of the virus, and there are different ways to, to test for the virus. So most of the tests that we hear about are PCR tests, which, which basically amplify the genetic material of the virus uh, multiple times, and then eventually it gets, it gets detected. An antigen test is, I'd say, a quicker way to do it because the re results are, uh, it's more, almost like a rapid strep test type of test that we've all had if we've gone to the doctor with a sore throat. So it, it's just a, a lot easier or a lot quicker result, a little less costly, a tiny bit less sensitive, but obviously much less invasive and much more readily available. When you say a tiny bit less sensitive, you mean you know, ultimately maybe it's less accuracy? Is that what you're what you're saying potentially? Yes. So if if someone tests positive for an antigen test, then typically you'd like to follow that up with the PCR test, which is the gold standard, and that and that's what the protocol will will entail. I'm sure you've heard in the news about people having false positives uh, in the NFL, et cetera. That's what we have to guard against is having a, having a false positive or a false negative and, and the test being misleading. But the tests are definitely good enough where it's good information that if you're testing every day, that increases your accuracy a lot. Quidel's antigen testing was initially shipped to nursing homes and first responders, but it created a mutually beneficial partnership with the Pac-12 athletic departments. The conference was in need of reliable daily rapid testing to begin considering return to sport, and Quidel lacked data on young adults, specifically asymptomatic young adults. The test kits at each university send anonymous results to the cloud, where Quidel scientists have immediate access and can track data in real time. One of the attractions of this partnership is Quidel's focus on, on research and using what we're going to be able to do in Pac-12 athletics as a way to look at the testing algorithms and the frequency and the cadence uh, and the results to improve society, not just on our campuses and their communities, but across the country. That's what our universities are all about. We've got some of the leading university hospitals and medical research centers in the country urgently working on solving a lot of these questions in public-private partnerships with leaders in industry. And uh, this partnership with Quidel is going to allow Pac-12 athletics to play a small role in that because this hasn't been done before. With this demographic, with the frequency of testing, there's going to be data and feedback that I think will inform how we return to school, how we return to work, and how we return our economy back to the normalcy we all desperately want. Quidel's research will inform coronavirus measures taken all over the country and can be applied to circumstances outside athletics. Pac-12 research is also interested in the study and its implications for student-athlete health overall. I'll let Dr. Kim Harmon, head of sports medicine at the University of Washington and researcher for the Pac-12 Student-Athlete Health and Wellbeing Initiative, explain it. I really think that this is a fantastic example of the collaboration amongst the Pac-12 
universities. We have been working on developing a clinical research infrastructure for the past four or five years and have been able to put together one so that we can actually implement new things or what might be considered best practices and then test them and, and make adjustments as we need to. So we've been able to do similar projects to this in the past. We've done projects with concussion, with cardiac issues, and we currently have an ongoing mental health project. So this will fit nicely into that portfolio of, of things. And we can, I think, learn a lot about uh, the coronavirus and how we can get our athletes back safely to sport. And that can hopefully be used in, in other settings as well. For now, the Pac-12 is focused on implementing testing for fall sports that will start before 2021, like football. Once basketball season starts on November 25, daily testing will be necessary for those student-athletes and staff as well. The emphasis on daily is important because it provides the medical staff with the ability to narrow the idea of when a person started spreading the virus down to a 24-hour window, which is vital information for contact tracing and slowing the spread. Here's Dr. Harmon again. In terms of the, the frequency of testing and being able to pull people out of before their infections, there are mathematical models that would suggest that if you do daily testing that's rapid turnaround, that you can catch all the infections before they become actually infectious and then get them out of that pool so that they can't spread. And the, that's one of the real advantages to that rapid turnaround is that you know the results right then and you, and that person who's potentially infected doesn't sort of go around and spread it for 24 hours while you're waiting for the results to come back. And so these rapid tests should be able to detect infection before people become infectious, and then we can pull the athletes. So theoretically, when people are out there on the field, they're not going to infect each other. And then that has big implications in terms of who you need to quarantine because theoretically, there is an argument to be made that you would not have to quarantine others on the same uh, field or court when somebody becomes positive because you knew they weren't infectious when they were playing. There is more confidence in the protocol and the student-athlete's safety with this frequent testing, as well as professional oversight. USC's Associate Athletic Director for Athletic Medicine and Head Trainer Russ Romano gave us some insight on the implementation of the rapid testing protocol. We took the approach in, in involving our chief medical officer, Sarah Van Orman, and her team, and also talking to our experts over at Keck, that the best way to do this, this approach is to utilize professionals, lab experts, and you know, nursing staff, and those who are you know, used to doing these types of collections and observing the collections, the chain of custody to get it to a lab. We're going with the CLIA waiver, certified approach. So we're really taking the most professional approach to everything from the collection to the transportation to the lab, to the lab experts executing the tests so that there's no mistakes. So we were very fortunate that the university stepped up and supported this effort with these types of professionals. With the three main COVID-19 concerns resolved, case count in LA, risk of myocarditis and daily rapid testing, the presidents and chancellors of Pac-12 universities voted on September 24th through Zoom Sports. The seven-game football season will start on November 7th, and basketball season will begin more or less on time. Each team will have a different protocol depending on the nature of the sport. Some can distance more easily than others. And Dr. Gamron explains how USC Athletics went about the assessment of testing protocol. So what we've done in 
within our Pac-12 committee is we've stratified each sport and each aspect of each sport, both practice and competition, as high risk, medium risk, or low risk. And based on that, recommended the masking and physical distancing that that the sport would require, A, and B, the frequency of coronavirus testing when that sport uh, comes back online. So right now we have some water polo athletes that are working out in parallel with football and uh, they're getting tested every week, just, just like football is right now. And it's not just football that's going to be in a testing protocol. These other sports will be uh, tested maybe not every day. Um, it could be three times a week or every other day, but they're going to be tested as well. Basketball looks like it's going to be every day for a while and hopefully we can get it down to every other day. But yeah, they, we're, we're not forgetting about the other sports. It just, it just so happens that, that football obviously has the, has the most impact on the well-being of the athletic department. And so that's important that we can demonstrate that we can do that safely and then some of the other sports can follow. You think rowing, right? No contact? Well, the, the girls are sitting one foot from each other, absolutely huffing and puffing for three hours. That's high-risk sport. You know, it doesn't seem to be, you wouldn't say rowing is, would be high risk, but it's something that you can maybe take the risk down a little bit if you wear a mask while you row, but it's, that part of it is high risk. If you look at baseball, there, most of it is not high risk, but then, you know, when a guy is holding a guy on at first base, then, then it becomes a little bit more high risk. And then the catcher, the catcher and the batter and the umpire all are standing there much less than six feet apart. And so we've just gone down and broken down each sport individually like that and come up with some pretty good recommendations to reopen things safely when those sports come back online. Right when concerns are mitigated, new ones arise. Attention has been turned towards the dangers of risking injuries by returning too early. The timeline that student-athletes' bodies have become accustomed to, marked by off-season, pre-season, and then season, has been thrown out the door since quarantine started. Athletes didn't have access to their usual training facilities and had to make do with at-home workout equipment. As everyone can agree, it became impossible to replicate a normal summer. Injuries are inevitable every season, but in these particular circumstances, there is worry that they could become more likely. Here's Dr. Gamrat on the increased risk of injuries. I've watched more NFL in two weeks than I have in five years because usually I'm helping with USC athletes on the weekends. And so I saw all those injuries that happened over the weekend and was really disheartened because obviously a lot of great athletes and a lot of season ending injuries. And so as an orthopedist, uh, you know, you just have to let the athletes and their coaches and the strength coaches and the athletic trainers do their job and try to get them as ready as, as they can be. But it is going to, it is going to be interesting to see the type of injuries and the amount of injuries that we incur as a conference when athletics starts starts back up because there certainly will be injuries just like there are every football season but you know in USC football there are typically 20 orthopedic surgeries done every year on our football team so if you are a USC football athlete there's a 1 in 5 chance you're having surgery that year so that means year by year you've got an 80% chance of having some surgery while you're while you're a USC athlete. And so it's a, it's a dangerous sport regardless. And I think the athletes that play it 
totally understand that. And we've got some of the best strength coaches in the nation that are preparing them to try and keep them safe. The Pac-12 picked November 7 as its start date to give football teams enough time to prepare. And while Drake Jackson has been in the weight room and Keaton Slovis has been strengthening his core, USC football hadn't gathered as a full team on Howard Jones Field until training camp opened on October 9. You know, we have been able to train. I think we started, you know, in June, mid-June. I think the the student athletes um, who were able to partake in the training have benefited greatly. You know, and we've ramped up in, in working with Aaron Osmus and his staff. They've done a really good job. But keep in mind that the environment has constantly been changing. Like, I don't think we've gone through a week where something significant hasn't happened to, to create a change. Where, you know, we started training in the weight room initially and they got moved outside. We, we didn't have to wear masks when lifting and now we do. You know, thankfully we're back in the weight room. The good news is that we've been able to train with our coaches for a significant period of time where we've been able to do change of direction drills. We're, we're carefully monitoring all of those movements outside with Kyle Voigt, who's our, our sports scientist, and relying heavily on catapult data on preparation to go into a practice environment. And we feel like, you know, we've made great strides in preparation. Even if the USC athletics staff and student athletes take every safety precaution out there, the reality is that these players are not in a bubble scenario. While the USC athletic facilities are safe and sanitized, the world is not. So the student athletes must remain vigilant. You know, football doesn't give anyone the coronavirus, right? I mean, if, 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 if I don't have coronavirus and you don't have coronavirus and we play football, we don't get coronavirus. But... It's, it's life that's getting people sick much more so than, than the facility or practice or, or anything like that. But it seems to me that sort of campuses, campus parties, campus interactions are, 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 are still to this moment a, you know, a bigger threat than a weight room that is being sanitized constantly and, and, and you know, guidelines are enforced. Without a doubt, Jordan. I mean, that's, and that has been... Uh, one of the things that I've mentioned throughout this process is that most of the transmission of this illness is going to be at those campus events, whether it's roommate to roommate or student to student at a party. Those activities are much riskier, just like you said, than lifting in the weight room and working out. Now, obviously, lifting in the weight room and working out is a very safe activity when we are socially distancing and keeping athletes in groups of 10 or 12 and absolutely sterilizing the heck out of all of our equipment in between athlete groups. So obviously all that goes out the window when we start doing uh, full contact padded practices. And that's where testing really comes in. So if you're testing someone every day, you can say with reasonable certainty that the group of athletes that are practicing that day are free from uh, coronavirus and then you do it again the next day. And so that allows us to uh, do some, or it, well, it should allow us to do some contact uh, practices safely, much like they've been doing in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, both women's and men's soccer, and then to a lesser degree, you know, the first few weeks of other conferences 
playing college football. And so that ability to test every day, which is coming online in the Pac-12 in the next week or two, is going to be really helpful for us uh, to provide student athletes and their parents some confidence that uh, the athletes that they're participating with are coronavirus free. This fall and winter, health officials are bracing themselves for the massive storm that perennially hits. Not only will COVID-19 stick around, but the flu is in the air. In San Diego for the bowl game last year, we had a tremendous flu slash cold outbreak where we had multiple athletes that had the flu and had colds. I mean, there were probably 15 athletes who had it. And so that's going to be the real trick is when we have these athletes with upper respiratory infections, they used to, you know, if they felt okay and they didn't have a high fever, they used to be able to play. That is not going to be the case anymore. Anyone with an upper respiratory tract infection is probably going to be out until they're, number one, ruled out for coronavirus, and number two, asymptomatic. And so it's going to really change the way we manage these garden variety upper respiratory illnesses and flus that we usually get during that season. At USC in the Pac-12, the science led the way and suddenly the path to playing is green. Well, maybe more like yellow. The Trojans will proceed with caution. On the next episode of Unprecedented Times, stuck at home waiting out the virus, USC Athletics is forced to confront the racial and social justice issues in this country. Unprecedented Times is hosted by me, Jordan Moore. The show is produced by Rich Rodriguez and Laura Wells, with writing assistance from Rebecca Tapinas. Thank you as well to Shana Kobernitz. And thank you to all our guests for participating.